one of the things that, that makes babies so much fun is their lack of object permanence. And even if you don't recognize that term, you know the concept. Object permanence is the understanding that objects continue to exist even when you don't see them anymore. And babies, at first, don't have that. When they get to the point where they can recognize objects, they can recognize a toy they like, a face they like, a food they like, they'll light up. But right when they begin to recognize objects, if you cover that object up after their face, face lights up, they will lose all understanding that that thing even exists. It just goes away from their little mind. Then as they grow, they go through these stages of object permanence, and it gets fun. This is why peekaboo becomes a fun game. Because, you know, maybe that little one in the high chair recognizes mom's face and lights up, and then mom ducks below the table. And they've got just enough object permanence. They know mom exists, but they don't know, right? They know, but they're just, they're not super positive. And so they have this anticipation, this thing, like, I think she's down there. Is she down there? And she pops up and they squeal. They're like, I knew it. I knew you were down there. Uh, it's fun. That's why Jack in the Boxes were a big toy for ever, basically. At first, a kid has no entrance. Uh, uh, interest. Because when Jack is in the box, they have no idea Jack exists. Then later, they turn that crank because they just got to find out if he's in there or not. I think he is. I know, but I don't know. And he pops out. Like, oh, I was right again. I'm a genius. And it's, it's really fun to, to laugh at, at babies in those stages of development because we're so far advanced beyond that. But I think our Heavenly Father still, I don't know if he chuckles, I don't know if he shakes his head, I don't know how this goes down, but he has a little fun with us with our lack of object permanence. Because the, the object that is permanent, that we, we struggle to know is permanent, is his love for us. I can't tell you how many times as a pastor that I have had conversations that go something like this. It's basically, I, I know God loves me, but, and then the person lists two or three or five or ten things that lets me know this person really has, does not know that God loves them. That's why they're here. Like, I know God loves me. He loves the whole world, right? So he has to love me. I'm part of the world. But God doesn't really like me. They communicate to me this, this feeling they have that God exists in this, this perpetual state of disappointment and how I turned out and how I blew it today. Like, does any of this sound familiar to anybody? Any of this thinking sound familiar to anyone? Or am I the only, am I the only one? That's our object. Like, I know, I know God loves me, but I don't know that God loves me. 
Well, we have just begun, if you've been keeping track as we've had sermons online, we've just begun a, a new section of the book of Romans in chapter 5. Romans 5 through 8 is a new section, the third section of the body of this book. And, and in general, it is about hope. The main result of our justification by faith is the hope that we have. That's what this big section, chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8 are all about. What Paul has taught us before chapter 5 is about justification by faith. The Bible's clear. No one is getting to heaven unless they are justified by God. Justified is just a word that means to be declared righteous, like in court. Nobody is getting into eternal life unless in the courtroom of the universe, God looks at that person and declares this person is righteous. The bad news came in the first section of the body of this book, Romans 1.18 through 3.20, where Paul lays out, none of us are righteous. None of us are going to be uh, justified based on how good we were during our life, how moral we were, how our good outweighed our bad. We are all without excuse before God. Not only based on our own behavior would God condemn us, he would be right, just, correct in doing so. That's the first section of the body of the book of Romans. And then in the second section, Romans 3.21, through the end of chapter 4, Paul taught us about another way we can be justified, declared righteous. Paul calls it justification by faith. We say we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. God promises if you will just believe that what my son did at the cross was to swallow the wrath of God you deserve for your sin, if you will only believe that, I will drop the gavel in the courtroom of heaven and I will justify you. I will declare that your faith counts as if it were a lifetime of perfection. That's justification by faith. That's where we've been. Now where we are, Paul says we have hope because we're justified by faith. So now this is only for Christians. If you have not, played, if you have not believed in what Jesus did, he did for you, you don't have the hope that Paul's going to tell us about for 5, 6, and 7, and 8. Paul said, first in chapter 5, we have peace with God. That gives us hope. He said, we can rejoice in the glory of God. We're gonna, every person's going to stand in God's full glory one day. And that will either be the most terrifying moment of your life or will be the most magnificent moment of your existence to date. For those who are justified in, by faith, we can rejoice in the hope of that day, not cower in fear of it. We have hope because we're justified by faith. But... But, if you are not convinced that God really actually loves you, during those seasons when my doubts seep in and I think God doesn't really like me, if he knows everything I've done, there's no way God loves me. Not today, not after the week I've had. We will not have the hope Paul says we're supposed to have. If we're not convinced that God delights in us, 
that will whittle away at this hope, correct? Paul knew that was true. That's why he wrote what he wrote today. Because Paul wanted the Romans to know, and I want you to know, if you have believed in Jesus Christ, God loves you. And Paul, he wants you to know what you know. He knows we struggle with this object permanence because we don't see it all the time. God doesn't send us valentines and flowers. He doesn't just stop by at work to say hi. And he allows painful things into our lives. How do we know what we should know? That God loves us. Let's read our passage this morning. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. Said, will you click one time for me there? Maybe my pointer will wake up after that. Okay, Romans chapter 5, 6 through 11. For while we were still helpless, at the right time God died, excuse me, Christ died for the ungodly. For no one will hardly, for one will hardly die for a righteous man, Though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult or rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. That fantastic passage of scripture is divided pretty uh, obviously into two parts. First half and the second half. First half is verses 6 through 8. And here is Paul's main point in verses 6 through 8. God's love is way greater and bigger than man's love. The magnitude of love with which God loved us is so much higher and greater and bigger than anything we could muster up in our hearts. Anything we've felt, anything we've given It's just greater, it's higher, it's bigger. That's Paul's main point. Now, as per usual for Paul, it takes Paul a lot of words to make that point, which I understand. Uh, So we're going to go through these verses and and take them apart, put them back together to see how Paul proves that point, that God's love is not like our love. He starts, verse 6, by telling us something that we should already know by this point, in the book of Romans. Paul says, while we were still helpless, your Bible might say weak or without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. In that first section of the body of the book of Romans, the the bad news, where, where Paul is convincing us all how much we deserve wrath from God, I often said during, while we studied that section, here was our real problem. Three things, remember, remember what they are. We, we suppressed the truth, we bought the lie, and we made a terrible exchange. See, the truth is, Paul said, 
there's a God out there who created all this, including us. And so the truth is, we are accountable to that God. And so the truth is, and we have enough evidence, Paul said, to understand that much. And so the truth is, my best life now, the best way I could spend my life is figuring out what that God wants from me and being about that. Glorifying Him, honoring Him, thanking Him, obeying Him. That's the best way I could spend my life. That's the truth. Our problem is, we don't want that to be the truth. We buy a lie. The lie is, my life would actually be better if I spent my, my life trying to get those things for me. I want glory and honor and thanks. I want to be noticed. I want to be impressive to others. I want people to, to uh, I want to be comfortable and people to serve me. I kind of want to be in God's spot. That's the problem. That's the exchange that we make. And, and Paul let us know, not only is that our condition, we're so far gone, we can't do anything about that condition. Right? That's what Paul's reminding us of right here in verse 6. When he says, while we were still helpless, or your Bible might say weak or without strength, that's what Paul's talking about. Back when we were not justified by faith, we were so far gone, we were wicked, we were ungodly, and we couldn't do anything about it. We couldn't even start to improve ourselves enough to make ourselves okay with God. That's how helpless we were, and that, at just the right time, is when Christ died for the ungodly. God, let human beings try it for a while. See if you can be good enough. We couldn't. Then God sent the law. Here's the written list of what moral and behavioral righteousness would look like. See if you can do that. He knew we couldn't. He just wanted to demonstrate to us that we couldn't because we're helpless. And when he had given enough time to demonstrate that, at just the right time, Christ died for what kind of people? Ungodly. That can be translated wicked. God didn't send Jesus to die on the cross when we were so close, when we were trying our bestest. At just the right time, he sent Jesus to die for wicked, ungodly folks like you and me. That's the first hint about God's love. But Paul wants to compare God's love to man's love, human love. So in verse 7, he says this, For rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might possibly dare to die. Here's what Paul's doing there. When you do a little mental exercise, for some of you that will be harder than others. Um, <laughs> Here's what I want you to do. I want you to make a list in your brain of the people you would be willing to die for. In other words, you know, the, the crazed intruder breaks in and says, someone's going to die. Either you or fill in, the, fill in the blank. Who could you fill in that blank with? And you would say, yep, go and kill me. Who's on your list, and how do you make that list? Would any of you make your list this way? Mr. Masked Intruder, um, anyone out there who 
lives a morally righteous life. I don't even have to know them. And you know, if they're just a pretty good person, they try their best to obey God's rules. I'd be willing to die for that person. Is that how you would make your list? Paul says, very rarely will anyone make their list that way. See that? Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Paul says, a few people would put good people on their list. For Paul, a good person is someone who goes above and beyond what is required by law. There might be some people that you would consider so good, so valuable, like to society, to other people, that they might make your list. An example I thought of, like, if this was 20 years ago and Billy Graham was still alive and a guy came in and said, hey, I'm either going to kill you or Billy Graham. Some of us might be like, man, it was Billy Graham. <laughs> like, you know, I want to live and all, but he's so good in his purpose. Maybe he, maybe he would go on our list. How would you make your list? I think I know how you would make your list. I think we would all make our list the same way. Whoever winds up on your list is necessarily someone that you value more, that you love more than you love your own life, continuing to live. Isn't that true? Just necessarily? You wouldn't put anyone down that you love less than your own life or you wouldn't put them on the list. Right? This is why if the deranged intruder broke into my house when all of us, the whole Maxwell family is home and said, one of you is going to die, who's it going to be? I am very confident that I would volunteer Cedric to die for all the rest of us. Right? That'd be ridiculous, wouldn't it? I absolutely would volunteer. Take, take me. Why? Because I love my wife and my kids more than I love continuing to take oxygen in my lungs. Isn't that how you'd make your list? That's what Paul wants us to think about. And as long as we think, as soon as we thought about that, he's got us sufficiently set up. Because God so does not love like that. Romans 5.8, if you don't have a favorite verse, if you've never memorized the verse of Scripture, think about this one. Paul says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, meaning in place of us and because of us. You see in that verse, not only does God make his list of who would live and who would die, not only does he make it differently than you and I would make our lists, it's the exact opposite. It's the exact opposite. He only had one. You, you and I, we all agreed we would let our kids live so that we could die. God not only let, he only had one, one and only son, there's only one human being who was the God-man that, that God could rightly say, and he did. His voice boomed from heaven and said, Behold, this is my son, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased, just by the way he has lived, by, by every decision he's made. The only person God could ever say that about. 
And God not only allowed him to die, he caused the death of his one and only son. Why? So that sinners, that Paul will say in the next verse, God's enemies would live. When I said a minute ago I was confident I would volunteer to let Cedric die, we all laughed. You know why? Because it's ridiculous. It's stupid to us. That's what God did. It would be like the masked intruder comes in and says, who's going to die? Me saying, I, you know what? I, I'm gonna, I want you to kill one of my kids and I want to help you get away. That's what God did. That's how God loves. God's love is supreme. It's of a higher, bigger, grander nature than anything we can fathom or muster. Isn't this your problem sometimes when you doubt God's love? Isn't this it? You struggle to believe that God loves you because you know all the things you've done. And you know God knows too. And you blow it again. And you go, there, there's no way. If God knows all I've done, there's no way I have been good enough for God to love me. Isn't that your problem? Exactly. Exactly. You'll get no arguments from me. In fact, the whole first section of the body of the book of Romans makes this point. You have not been good enough to deserve for God to love you. So the question is not, God, does God still love me after what I've done this week? The question is this, will you still believe God when God says he loves you despite of what you've done this week? Because that's what he's telling you this morning. Now, how can you believe it? How are we supposed to believe something that outlandish? I want to read verse 6 and verse 8 together. And just because I'm a former English teacher, I want you to pay attention to the verb tenses. Because they're supposed to agree. I don't know if you know that, but they are. And these don't. Verse 6 and verse 8, listen to the, we'll just do it in, in English. Past tense or present tense. Check out the verbs here. Paul says, For while we were, past tense, still helpless, at the right time, Christ died, past tense, for the ungodly. But God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were, past tense, still sinners, Christ died, past tense, for us. There's one verb in there that's not in the past tense. It doesn't agree. What is it? Demonstrates. Doesn't it seem like if I was grading this in an English paper, I would circle that and say this doesn't agree. Doesn't it seem like Paul should have said God demonstrated his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, that's when Christ died for us. He doesn't make a typo here, mainly because he wasn't typing. No. This is intentional. This is intentional. What is the proof, the continual, every single day proof of how much God loves you and how much God loves me? God demonstrates his own love for us at the cross. That is the continual, generational, perpetual 
demonstration. Like God says, I rest my case. God, I'm not sure you love me today. Look at the cross. God demonstrates every day his own love for us. And that while we were at our worst, Christ died for us. We sin, we fail, we get selfish, we blow it however we blow it. And we start to think, man, I, my, I really failed in my love for God. Am I really a Christian? Does God really love me? If I really loved God, I wouldn't have done that. God's love for you is not the feelings that well up inside of him when he's proud of you. God's love for you, not the feelings that are a result of your behavior. God's love for you is not a result of how you're doing in developing your character. God's love for you is based on his character and the performance of his perfect son. He did not love you because of your behavior at the very beginning. He demonstrates that by reminding us of the cross at your worst. God loved you before you did one halfway decent thing in your whole life. And so he doesn't turn his love on and off. Now that we're what? A little better than we used to be? Now, spent most of our time on the first half of this passage, but in the rest of it, which we'll do more quickly... Paul takes what he's just said about the love of God and puts it back into the the larger topic of this section of the book of Romans, which is all about our hope. God's magnificent love for us bolsters that hope we are supposed to have. He says this, Much more then, because we've now been declared righteous by his blood, we will be saved through him from God's wrath. I think Paul does something else interesting. He's is what we've just read about God's love, isn't that pretty, is amazing and awesome and just, I mean, it's what we get hung up because it's so unlike how we love. And then Paul says, and I'll tell you something that's much more than that. I think we're supposed to, and he says it twice. I think we're supposed to stop and go, wait, how can there be more? Much more than what you just told us? Paul says, but, but, but wait, there's more. Because We've now been justified, declared righteous by his blood. We will be saved from God's terrible, awful wrath. It's a done deal. It's over. I want you to notice the only way God's love flows to human beings is through the blood of Jesus Christ. We've been declared righteous because a very high price was paid for our justification. That's why the cross of Jesus Christ is the only way anyone will be rescued by God. And then Paul says confidently, we will be saved from the terrifying wrath of God. It's all been swallowed by Jesus. Ours has. Verse 10, Paul tells us what is, what is more, much more than our justification. He introduces a new concept into the book of Romans. We haven't seen it before. Always before verse 10 in this book, what the death of Jesus has done is accomplished our justification, which is where our legal status changes from unrighteous 
too righteous. Um, when I talk about justification, a way to make it memorable, I said this in the first section months and months ago now. When we, in God's courtroom, like we want to stand there, we want to be like Jesus, but the best we can hope for in God's courtroom is to be like, anybody remember? Be like O.J., like O.J. Simpson. That's our best hope. You know why? That dude was guilty. And you know what the court declared? Not guilty. Now, here though, here's where that metaphor breaks down. Because O.J. Simpson and Judge Ito, remember Judge Ito? The judge in the case? They didn't become friends, did they? I think when O.J. walked out of that courtroom, the Honorable Lance Ito thought, we just let a guilty, this is an injustice, right? They didn't become friends. Look what Paul says about us. For if we, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. How much more since we've been reconciled will we be saved by his life? Reconciliation is a relationship word. God, as judge, doesn't drop the gavel and say, well, I've got to let you go on a technicality, but you better get out of here before I change my mind and I know you're still guilty. No! We're reconciled to God. We're not enemies anymore. That's what the cross of Jesus Christ did. And then Paul says, and if while we were enemies, God crushed his one and only son in whom he was well pleased, made us friends, how much more... Are we going to be saved by his life? That's very cool. Here's what Paul's saying. Um, did Jesus go through something really horrific there at the end of his earthly life? Cross, was that pretty bad? It's pretty awful. Um, if we could go check in on Jesus to see how he's doing now, how's he doing? Oh, are you okay? Is he, is he in heaven like still in a hospital bed, IV, in traction. God the Father is just hoping he pulls through. Is that how Jesus is doing now? No. He was restored to the glory he had from the foundation of the world. And if we're to believe the Bible, somehow because of his human obedience, he's somehow even better than he was before, and he was God before. Here's what Paul says. Do you think, O human? That if God was willing to crush his one and only son while you were his enemy and while you hadn't done anything halfway decent in your whole pathetic life and he crushed his son under the weight of your sin, now that he's made you his friend and the enmity is gone and now that Jesus is fine, he's alive and well and glorious and awesome and he's on the throne of the universe, you think he's still sore at you now? It's fixed. Since we've been reconciled, we'll be saved. How much more by his life? That's why when you come here, you don't see Jesus still on that cross in this church. Because now he's, we have a risen Lord who is awesome and glorified. And God ain't still sore at us because his son is more than fine. That's why Paul finishes by, by basically saying, this is why we rejoice in God 
We don't keep God at arm's length. We don't avoid him. We don't, he's not scary. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ because through him we have, we've received this reconciliation. That's how God loves you. Now, one other argument. Then I hear people, I've heard people say this. Yeah, but if I just had some proof. Remember, our problem's object permanence. Right? God doesn't visit us. You just have to believe this. People say, well, Paul, you know, Paul, he saw the risen Christ. Of course, he believes. If I had some proof, there's an old preacher, evangelist named H.I. Ironside. H.A. Ironside, excuse me. He used to tell the story about a man he was sharing the gospel with. He was encouraging him to accept Christ. And, and this man said, I, I am not going to go one step further with you until I have some proof. Right? I want to see, I want a, a definite witness, I think was the words that he used. And Ironside thought for a minute and said, well, suppose an angel visited you and told you this is all real and your sins are forgiven at the cross. Would that be enough? The man said, yeah, you're sure, absolutely. Ironside said, well, well, then suppose on your deathbed you got a visit from another angel. He said, hi, my name's Satan, and I was the angel to begin, that, that showed up the first time. I, I disguised myself as an angel of light. I do that from time to time. And I deceived you. None of that was real, and you're not forgiven. Ironside said, you wouldn't know who to believe. Would you? Would you be sure then? The man was speechless. And H.I. Ironside said this. God has given us something more dependable than the voice of an angel. He has given his son dead for our sins. And he's testified in his own word that if we trust him, all our sins are gone. And Ironside read him, John, 1 John 5, 13, you may know that you have eternal life. Is that not enough to rest on, he asked him. It's a letter from heaven expressly written to you. I know many of us struggle to know. We know God loves us, but we don't know. How can you know? When you were at your worst. What kind of person did, God, did Paul say God saves in this passage today? Weak, helpless, ungodly, wicked, sinners who were his enemies. And the good news? You qualify. That's who we are. At our worst. At our worst. He loved us enough to kill his one and only son. And God rests his case because God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for, because of and in place of us. Pray with me. Our Father and our God, 
however many times we hear that message that you love us or some part of our hearts that, that can't hardly believe it because your love is so much bigger and greater than how we are able to love. God, impress upon us you love us. You love us or you wouldn't have crushed your son for us. And God, do that not just so that we have better feelings, but just so that our hope is sure. You loved us first, and we, we love you back. We fail in that love, and thank you that your love for us is not, not based on our performance or our character. It's based on your character and Jesus' performance, and those things will never change. Thanks for loving us. We love you back in Jesus' name. Amen.